When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can unlock ad-free versions of the podcast for $3 a month and get bonus episodes on current TV, movies we don't cover on the podcast, and other topics for $5 a month. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. That's patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here with Keith Epps and Genevieve Kosky. Our absent co-host Scott Tobias is away at, uh, I, don't, I don't know, I think he's going to law school at a men's retreat, something like that. I don't know. He sent us a slightly muddled telegram about an uncharted island and learning what is the law and, and something about being a man. I, I'm sure whatever is going on there is all going to work out fine. This week, we're looking at two pretty different movies about extremely mad techno scientists obsessed with perfection and creation specifically about teaching ordinary animals to walk upright, talk intelligibly, and act like people. The only problem with that being that people often have much more complicated needs than animals and much more ability to plan a way to get out from under oppressive owners. Keith, can you walk us through this latest pairing? Absolutely. James Gunn's latest installment in the Guardians of the Galaxy series features a lot of small arcs and a lot of small payoff for its huge cast. But the central spine focuses on Rocket, a sentient bipedal raccoon who it turns out was transformed from an ordinary raccoon by a mad scientist in a hellish lab. His creator, the high evolutionary, was obsessed with creating the perfect being, and he was willing to torture endless animals in the quest to find it. His cruel methods and sociopathic behavior reminded us quite a bit of H.G. Wells' 1896 novel, The Island of Dr. Moreau, and its various screen incarnations, but particularly the standout 1932 version, The Island of Lost Souls, starring Charles Lawton and featuring Bella Lugosi. Both of those movies have madmen turning animals into people, which doesn't go well either for the animals or the madmen. So this week, we'll head back to 1932 in an uncharted jungle isle populated with men who wish they'd never been made into men. And next week, we'll take in the big picture of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, from its attempt to pay off a huge crowd of characters all at the same time, to its take on animals, new life, and the unscientific method. Stay tuned. convinced that the thing on this table isn't human. Its cries are human. Do you know what it is, what I began with? No. An animal. Well, we may as well discuss this frankly, now that you know the facts. I wanted to prove how completely she was a woman. I'm not beaten. <laughs> Get everything ready. For what? This time I'll burn out all the animal and I'll... <laughs> 
I'll make her completely human. If there's one thing classic literature, junky pop horror movies, and every form of media in between them can agree on, it's that playing God by creating new forms of life is a terrible idea. The modern beats of that particular morality tale most clearly date back to Mary Shelley's 1818 novel Frankenstein, about a mad scientist who assembles a man from sewn-together bits of corpses, brings him to life with electricity, then feels revulsed and abandons his new creation, with long-term lethal results. But that theme continues throughout the two centuries plus that followed. Just as horror movies always find a way to turn the latest technological innovations into murderous threats, science fiction and fantasy stories have always pondered what would happen if humanity took that technology and used it to create rivals for themselves. Whether it's the organic robots in Carol Chapek's 1920 play R.U.R. rising up to strike down their creators, concerns over mechanical intelligences rising up in the Terminator movies or Ex Machina, or the genetically engineered humanoids in Splice and Morgan rebelling and running amok, Western stories are quick to remind us all that any non-human intelligent life that humanity creates is probably going to notice humanity's alpha status on the planet and step up to take us down a peg. H.G. Wells' The Island of Dr. Moreau was published nearly 80 years after Frankenstein, but it follows some of the same beats, with an arrogant tinkerer setting out to break the laws of nature to prove a point, and ultimately paying the price for his... Let's all say it together, it's the absolute favorite word of stories like this. Hubris. Hubris. A key difference, though, is that where Victor Frankenstein is an irresponsible absentee parent who immediately abandons both his new creation and his scientific hobby, the titular scientist in the island of Dr. Moreau is a hands-on creator who keeps pumping out new Frankensteins by the score, to the point where he's built an entire cowering society of them, all under his thumb and under his law. Earl C. Kenton directed the 1932 movie adaptation Island of Lost Souls, coincidentally enough, before going on to helm a few of Universal's Boris Karloff Frankenstein movies, House of Frankenstein and Ghost of Frankenstein. In his version of Wells' story, Moreau is a leering baddie who speaks with the elevated accent and precise diction of an English nobleman, but smirks and simpers like a silent movie villain who's about to tie a scantily clad young woman to the railroad tracks. He's a mad doctor in the I'll show them all my genius someday mode, but he's also a lascivious creator who, it's implied, put his greatest effort into turning a panther into a woman so he'd have somebody beautiful to dominate and control. Island of Lost Souls' seeming hero is Edward Parker, played by Richard Arlen as a good-hearted stiff who winds up on Moreau's Island after one boat sinks under him and he's thrown off the next one by a cruel drunken captain. Moreau, played elegantly by Charles Lawton, immediately sees the chance to further his experiments by breeding Edward to Lotta, one of his animal people, to see whether she can truly behave like a woman, up to and including sex and childbirth. Meanwhile, Edward is horrified to learn about Moreau's cruel experiments, which center on torturous processes in a place the animal people all refer to with dread as the House of Pain. It's all pretty lurid in that pre-Haze Code kind of way especially in the screams and wails that lead Edward to discover what Moreau's up to, and in the way Lotta, played by Kathleen Burke in her first role, lounges around in a brief and revealing costume, making eyes at Edward in between bouts of being menaced, caged, and controlled by Moreau. But of course, Moreau's creatures rise up against him, in large part because of an extra layer of hubris that has him pushing them to violate the laws that he's given them to push them towards humanity. It's worth considering in any of these stories about mad scientists creating life, where the ultimate threat is meant to be. In some cases, these stories are straightforward, pious reminders that man shouldn't tread on God's domain, however we want to define that domain for the purpose of any particular morality tale. 
But in cases like the Island of Lost Souls and many of its conceptual followers throughout the next century plus, there are darker currents than that. In some of these creators versus created stories, the gist is simply that humanity is pretty awful, and any remotely thinking creation would recognize their creator's weaknesses and flaws and work to destroy them. In others, the gist is more that being human is hard, and any remotely thinking creation would reject the option of being human. For the animals in Island of Lost Souls, it seems like being human is a horror that none of them would have chosen, because it starts with pain and ends with wearying responsibility. The animal men are told to deny their instincts and desires, to live by Moreau's laws against walking on all fours, eating meat, or hunting as they used to. These things are difficult and miserable, and nothing about quasi-humanity compensates for what the animal men have lost. Either way, stories about playing God never reflect well on the state of being human. Not on the choices we make. Not on the lives we lead. Even those of us who aren't sadistic psychopaths. What is the law? Not to run on all fours. That is the law. Are we not men? Are we not men? What is the law? Not to eat meat. That is the law. Are we not men? What is the law? Not to spill blood. That is the law. Are we not men? His is the hand that makes. His is the hand that heals. Am I am I wrong to think that the the two main stars of this movie are actually Charles Lawton and the makeup designers? The makeup was maybe what most caught me in this film, which I had not seen before this. You're you're forgetting a very important third star, which is the fog. <laughs> yes, some of it I, I learned not was just like fortuitous. It just happened to be there while they were filming it too. So that's uh, good improv. Fog can um, improv. Uh, the makeup's amazing. I mean, it's, it's definitely something, you know, it's, and each, each creation is kind of startling in its own way. I, I don't think there's any I like more than, than Bella Lugosi's, uh, uh, Sayer mm-hmm. the Law, though. That's, that's, that's an amazing, that's just really, uh, uh, striking design right there. Nightmarish and yet kind of tender, right? There was a fair bit of the movie where I actually thought, because I'd never seen Lawton this young before, I kind of thought that his second command was a, uh, a Bella Lugosi younger than I'd ever seen him before. Hmm. And I eventually had to look it up. I was, I was pretty surprised to find out that Lugosi was uh, completely unrecognizable under a humongous amount of uh, facial fur. Yeah, but once he starts talking, it may be a little more apparent, right? It's a very Hungarian say so yes. the law. <laughs> yeah. You can see why they gave him that role, you know, because it it comes with a it, it, and the the necessity for gravitas. But apparently, this was immediately after Lugosi declared bankruptcy, and possibly one of these movies that he wouldn't have taken if he didn't if he wasn't in uh, anything that that offers me money mode. 
but I mean, yes, as far as like the actual, you know, performers, I, I don't think anyone would argue with you about Lawton being the main, I don't want to say the main draw, because there's obviously a lot here that's compelling, but I guess maybe just the most memorable or most associated with this film, which I also hadn't seen before, but had definitely seen clips uh, of Bella Lugosi, as well as Lawton's performance. And of course, Panther Woman, who's name i regret not having off the top of my head kathleen Kathleen burke Burke, of course um you know who as you said in the keynote tasha kind of spends a lot of time just like lying around and looking (laughs) wide-eyed but uh you know it's a it's a very memorable wide-eyed expression she has well her her face is pretty unusual apparently there Mm -hmm. was a a a nationwide search Mm -hmm. for somebody who didn't quite look human uh, you know, they they distinctly <laughs> wanted a an unknown in this role, you know, maybe to represent the fact that they they didn't want anybody looking at this person and thinking, oh, yes, familiar movie star so and so like they literally wanted somebody who could represent someone who was created for this moment. It's an interestingly like like guileless or innocent performance for a, a panther woman, you know, <laughs> like uh, maybe that is just that comes down to her eyes, which are very striking. But they're you know she kind of just has this a little bit of like a, a baby woman feel <laughs> uh, to it, which you yeah. know is is in the dialogue, but also a little bit in the performance. And uh, you know if she wasn't called if she wasn't introduced in the credits as the panther woman i don't know that i would have necessarily gone right to panther as the uh as the animal inspiration there i think she's really good and she went on to have a fairly long career after this she's in another uh, of my favorite pre-code horror films which is murders in the zoo and another another film in which <laughs> uh, animals are are somewhat mistreated uh sometimes on camera which is a little a little rough but it's an interesting movie yeah, this movie definitely had me thinking about uh, how animals are treated in in movies. Basically, I don't know, up to what the eighties, uh, the nineties. Uh, there, there's just there's a lot of like uncomfortable uh, animals in this that look like they're being kept in very mm-hmm. small cages and probably poked until they respond in interesting ways for the camera. Mm-hmm. And it's it's an interesting undercurrent to a movie that's about the horror of somebody abusing animals. Yeah, the American Humane Association is a was a was a big was a big boon to animals not being treated horribly on sets uh in, in, in the United States at least. As far as Kathleen Burke as the Panther Woman, which you know, there's just there's a very like 30s luridity to this movie in a lot of ways, and crediting her as the Panther Woman rather than by name in those opening mm-hmm. credits strikes me as as similarly I don't know. There's there's something very showmanship about that mm-hmm. in a funny way, but maybe the one thing I could point to that that does indicate some sort of like feline origin is the sequence where she's just kind of like rubbing up against uh, Edward oh, yes. with her her head on his shoulder, and uh, like you can almost hear the purring. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, is that when would... he uh, then immediately grabs and kisses her after that? It's around the same time. I think yeah. it is. Yeah, I think I think uh, I wrote in my notes like she rubs on him and then he grabs her, and kisses her, which he like doesn't even do with his his betrothed later. She gets a a, ni- a nice hug. So yeah, I, it's, it's somewhat <laughs> pointed, right? I yeah, mean, it is. It is. Uh, uh, there are two types of women in this movie. I guess <laughs> one is not even really a woman. Yeah, I mean, I assumed that that was kind of built into the narrative. There's and you know, there's some very very uncomfortable colonialist assumptions there that somebody who 
a native woman who, you know, lies around dressing like that is just a completely different species of creature, uh, you know, than a, a proper English woman or American woman who, you know, dresses nicely and expects uh, to be married for 10 years before you put a move on her. I just assumed that because of the way Lada is dressed and the way he, she acts, Edward just assumes that she's sexually available, which seems like it's probably what Moreau wants. His yeah. his frankness about like, <laughs> oh, we'll just we'll get this stranger on the uh, on the island and like within minutes, the two of them will have sex and then a baby is one of the creepier elements <laughs> of this movie. Yeah, but it, I mean, it does, I guess, like, thematically, it does kind of, you know, tap into animal instincts or whatever, you know, as a, a contrast to humanity's, uh, you know, marriage and all the sort of social contracts that come before you can mate, whereas animals just mate, you know, so there is maybe a, a level of simplicity to it that is being evoked here. Yeah, and I think you're right to point out that there is definitely taps into like sort of the stereotypical, you know, South Seas, go to a beautiful island and find a beautiful native who's who's a native girl who's not, you know, doesn't have the hangups that we do. But I also but so much of this movie is kind of savage about colonialism and, and the hubris of it, to use that word again. Uh, I mean, you know, the way, down to the way that Moreau dresses in white and carries the bullwhip and, and things like that. The, the, the idea, there's you know, sort of this idea that you can just kind of come in and dominate these people that you consider lesser. It ends up backfiring in, in, in a pretty big way. Spoiler, I guess, if you haven't seen the <laughs> <laughs> Or Red Moreau. I, backing up a little bit from all of this, we, we kind of talked at the top about uh, Jennifer and I mentioned this is the first time either of us had seen it, but Keith, you were the one that pushed specifically to do this pairing over a, a variety of others that we suggested that involved. I mean, we we talked about maybe doing Splice or James Whale's Frankenstein or like a, a variety of other uh, don't play God creation movies. What what draws you to this one? Why did you suggest this? Oh, it's it's a favorite of mine. I, I I just really am fond of this movie. I find it find it unsettling and creepy, and 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 uh, a, a rich text in ways that you know we've already kind of talked about a, a little bit. I mean, it helps also that that, that James Gunn specifically cited as an influence on uh, Guardians Three as as well. But um, you know, I think there's still there's a lot to un unpack here, and I think the you know not to get into the connections too soon, but it's it's just so interested in in that line between you know where what divides us from 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 animals and it, or does anything divide us from from animals as well uh, I, I think it's just a fascinating film it's also like very rare that we like get to do pre-code uh, uh, mm -hmm. films on this podcast much less like pre-code horror films I don't think we ever have before King Kong fits the bill and and, and oh, sure, like that of course. yeah but but it's like and it's it is kind of shocking what you will see in in these movies, in these pre-code movies. And these movies, are, I think, rough. I, mean, I think the vivisection scenes, uh, the one in particular, uh, is you know with the creature on the, the man animal, whatever you want to call call him on on the table screaming. I mean, that's 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 tough. That's tough to see. I mean, the house of pain, and just even you know, it's not explicit. It's not sort of like you know explicitly violent or gory. But just the reaction all of the inhabitants have to the House of Pain, you know, you can just see what they've been through to, you know, in the, in their lives. 
Yeah, and the indication that Moreau didn't necessarily label it as the House of Pain, you know, that's an animal understanding of mm-hmm. this this place where bad things happen. But you'll notice that he doesn't ever try to, like, mitigate their fear of the place where he does these surgeries. Like, he doesn't try to comfort them or talk them through why their new lives are better. He just threatens them with the House of Pain uh, if, if he thinks that they're acting uppity, which, again, kind of takes us to... Uh, as you say, there's a, a very colonial uh, overview here, I think, to him being British. And most of these characters, while they are, as far as I can tell, you know, mostly white men under uh, under the costumes, like they're being portrayed as South Seas natives uh, in a lot of ways, like a, a combination of, I think, largely simian creatures, um, even though most of the animals that we see for conversion are big cats. The behavior that we see over and over in the actors uh, is very simian, which may just be because, you know, humanity itself (laughs) is, is close enough to simian that it's much easier for us to move like apes in terms of like climbing than it is for us to move like big cats. Well, and also like, because isn't one of the laws like you have to be on two feet, instead, mm-hmm. not, you know? So uh, not a lot of animals are bipedal. This is true. Yeah, there's there's some there's some pig people in there too, and and Maling, who is played by. Um, a Japanese American actor named Tetsu Kamai is supposed to be a dog, uh, like the one who's loyal to Dr. Moreau, uh, as you know, like as as dogs are. I mean, I think that's a really the whole colonial stuff is a really fascinating thing that runs through it. I, I think also you're right to bring up Frankenstein. You know, I, you know, Frankenstein is a product of of culture turning to reason to explain everything and science. And you know, the next step is like, well, if if God can create life, why can't can't we? And I think that's Frankenstein's about the horrors of that. I mean, this is, and I'm going to echo. Uh, David Skull, who wrote a book called The Monster Show and a, uh, a book called um, Screams of Reason, and it's all about mad scientists. But, but like, this is a result, the novel and, and the book as well is kind of a, novel, a result of, of Darwin breaking the brains of, of <laughs> Western culture because it's like, you know, you know, for centuries, it's the idea is that, that humans are this specialist, you know, next to God life form. And if you kind of just make the connection to animals and, and, and kind of, you know, erase the divine and, and make that connection stronger, it's like you have a whole culture thrown into an identity crisis. And I think that's how you get things like Island of Dr. Moreau and Island of Lost Souls. I think you're also very right to bring in King Kong, though, because that you know that's another movie that kind of expressly draws a line between like white Western civilization and humanity and beasts being in their way more human, you know, or certainly more empathetic, more sensitive, more kinder, uh, gentler, mm-hmm. more deserving of care uh, than uh, a lot of people, and that strikes me as maybe a, a big difference here uh, that we see between this. And like there, there certainly are movies like uh, Frankenstein or, or Ex Machina, where the creations, the, the new life are the sympathetic characters rather than uh, the, the creators. But I think movies like Splice tend to be a lot more common where humanity, for whatever, you know, selfish or stupid reason, creates life, and then that life turns out to be, like, evil and scary. Here, I think the sympathy is just entirely with the Beast people. Mm -hmm. I mean, the other point of comparison is Freaks, which came out the year before as well. 
down to the point where there's a you know it shares a cast member the the fiance uh is is also the the nice the nice woman in, in freaks but that's a movie where you know the outcasts and, and the quote-unquote ugly people are are so much more human than than some of the beautiful people in in that in that film as well and and you know your sympathies are always with the freaks there it's always with the creations the animal animal human creations in this movie Another movie I saw uh, people drawing comparisons to online was just Paramount's kind of previous effort in specifically adapting a classic into a sort of horror story, you know, featuring featuring and centering on startling makeup effects. Uh, 1931's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, mm-hmm. which I, I don't see as much maybe thematic connection here, but in terms of visual approach and and storytelling and reaching back to source material it's an interesting comparison in terms of just where paramount was focusing i've never seen that version of it but there is sort of in the in the jekyll and hyde story itself is this idea that you you know you revert to your animal nature right so it's not that far it's not 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 that far removed from from what we're exploring here too yeah, there's certainly that. Uh, it, it's it's fun, by the way. There's some makeup effects in that that are uh, really startling and really cool, and were done in a, a really cool way. But yeah, you're right. The uh, the theme there of there's sort of the the bestial human and the like sophisticated surface human, and uh, you're 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 in danger in a way if you don't let the bestial human out. But you're also in danger if you do. Yeah, that's there's a, a damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of thing there. And I guess there is also sort of a messing with science you maybe shouldn't ought to mess with uh, aspect to it. One thing that strikes me, and this is maybe of, of the films, like sort of similar films we've been talking about, maybe like Freaks is most similar in this regard. But what uh, what's interesting to me is sort of the creation of a community of outcasts. It's not just a a single, uh, you, you know, a Frankenstein's monster or Jekyll and Hyde. Like you have this whole little camp of these beast creatures. I, I feel like we need to have a, a name for <laughs> for them as a collective. I know. You I know? Keep over too. Like yeah. man, animals. animals. The freedom is, is taken, unfortunately. But uh, by, no, we, by the we, hit, we can he, take he it back. It's, it's, <laughs> it's time. It's time. Manimal uh, rejoined the the wider world. That eighties yeah. show can't hang on to it forever. <laughs> yeah. So, but but there's like a, a community of of animals, or you know, and like they, they they have sort of different. We only see a few of them, but like they have different kind of personalities and roles, and in the end, they come together to overthrow their creator. And there is sort of a, a you know this added element of a communal society of outcasts, uh, as opposed to just like a one singular freak. One aspect of that that I I just really love narratively is the idea that as much as these creatures like don't necessarily want to be human and don't necessarily want to be under Murrow's thumb, they maybe never would have rebelled if he hadn't decided it was convenient to break his own rules mm-hmm. and thus showed showed the uh, showed his animals that mm-hmm. morality is a convenience for the uh, the person who makes the rules. At which point they're like. Screw this humanity thing. I <laughs> I think there's just a I don't know. I have an an ongoing habit of tracking these creators versus created movies because so many of them I find like really annoying in their moralism, and I think it's always interesting when one gets a little more sophisticated. And here the idea of 
we don't love your rules, but we will accept them as as natural law and as the truth until you show us that you just made them up and you don't think you need to follow them. So why do we? I, I think that's a kind of a glorious narrative irony. It's been an extremely long time since I read the original. Does Does anybody remember whether that's drawn from the book? I'm about halfway through it. I never read it before either. I decided to pick it up uh, reading this. So I, I, the main difference that's that's striking to me is how much the idea of animals naturally evolving to human form is is original to this film. It's not in the Wells book. At least it's, it's introduced past the point where I'm, uh, where Dr. Moreau explains what he's up to, which is basically more uh, along the lines of just sort of altering animals to uh, into hum- human-like shapes. So I thought that was an interesting change um, for this. Yeah, and to tip our hand a little bit, that is something uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 takes directly from this movie in terms of the natural the state. Comics, of course, but yeah. Sure, <laughs> but the, the natural state of, the evo- of evolution being to eventually, after millions of years, achieve human form is just a, an interesting bit of vanity, I guess. But one of the places it, uh, it, it grabs form in this movie is just he started with plants. And hyper evolved asparagus. Them. <laughs> All of those plant effects are really cool, and yeah. just the idea of somebody, uh, you know, the set designer getting to just go really wild with like, show us what a, an orchid's going to look like in a million years, and ending up with something that looks like a triffid. I like. Mm-hmm. I love those effects. Yeah, the whole production design of this is, is 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 really cool. I mean, even starting with, I mean, this is obviously as we mentioned before a. a um, a fortunate side effect of of the fog going across Catalina Island at the right time, mm. but but the whole like sense of the, the you're all you feel like you're in another world from the beginning, even before you get to the island of Doctor Moreau. Um, and I think that whole theme of you know how humans, you know what makes humans humans, uh, is introduced pretty early on with the with the skipper who just tosses our our hero off at the <laughs> island because he doesn't like him and because yeah. he punched him, and he, he just he cites a rule, you know, a very human thing uh, to do it, but it's obviously a case of him bending the rules to suit mm. this particular case. It kind of echoes what Moreau does later in the film. Oh, that's a really cool observation. Yeah, that opening shot is so striking and foggy. And I'm kind of hesitant to, to say this because I don't want to like sound churlish or whatever. But I kind of felt like in the light of everything that came before that final shot of this movie is a little bit of a letdown. <laughs> or like it, it felt just very like close up shot in front of a matte background. And, mm-hmm. it, you know, after so much in like sort of inventiveness in the production design to end on what in my opinion is like a pretty uninspiring visual just felt odd. No, that makes sense. But I, I do really love "Don't look back" as the final line. You know, yeah. it's like "Don't look back" to that. Don't look back in terms of like you know, mm-hmm. uh, evolutionary-wise. It, it's really a, a fitting final, uh, final bit of dialogue there. That's true. You know, the opening shot actually sent my mind off in a direction that I was not expecting. And this is going to be maybe a little bit of a diversion here, but I haven't seen. Has, have either of you seen the Criterion edition? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I was watching. <laughs> Me too. I got oh, from wow. the library. <laughs> oh, yeah, I watched. Uh, I watched the online streaming version that it, we recommended it, to people. If, if you if you're going where I, where I think you're going, it, it looks rough even in the Criterion. It's very grainy. Uh, uh, there's this was a tough film to restore apparently um, to find all the all the elements they needed to to make it look uh, good. 
So I found myself looking at those first images of a man standing on the the deck of a boat. And it's just, it's so clearly a real boat in a real body of water, like looking out over real fog. And I found myself thinking for the first time, like, is this something that AI is going to change? Like in the in the way of uh, you know computers being used to colorize movies, which was a very rough process uh, at first and is going to keep getting better, I can't help but wonder like what the what the future of film restoration is going to look like with AI in terms of looking at these at images like that and recreating them not in terms of trying to to clean up the original film but just in terms of here's what this shot looks like. Now let's create it in a, in a photo real way. You know, you, you have all of the elements, just input them and have a computer refine them. I Well, that sounds like playing God, Tosh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think for the most part, now that we're on the other side of colorization and apart from, you know, people like William Friedkin kind of messing with their old movies and making them look quote unquote better. I think most film restoration people kind of share our, our instinct, which is like, make it look like the, uh, it looked when you saw it on the first day, not, not improve it. You know, there, there was like sort of like, I know when films were first being brought to DVD and especially Blu-ray, this like sort of a, a, do we just erase the grain? But I think there's enough people, the people, who, like I said, people who care about these things are a little bit of a purist about that kind of thing. So probably I don't, I wouldn't worry about that too much, but certainly uh, all the, you know, there, there's other, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but, but it seems like you're, you're not wrong that there are troubling implications for, for film restoration raised by new technology. Well, you certainly have a point in that the people who would care about a 1932 film and, and seeing a cleaned up version of it are not necessarily the people who are just thinking in terms of like, how we can we do everything faster and cheaper with AI. But uh, getting back to this movie, we haven't we haven't really talked enough, I think, about Lawton and his role here. He he is a very different kind of villain to my mind. You know, he's he's a little like wet mouthed and sleazy, especially when he's talking about Lada. He's also a little, you know, high minded and uh, paternal and, and patrician in a way. He's just he's a very unusual sort of film villain. And I wonder if you have any particular thoughts about his performance choices here. He's also a pervert. I mean, he's, he's kind of a, 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 a. I mean, he's a voyeur. I mean, like he, he doesn't just throw the panther, the panther woman together with with uh, with Parker. He, like he stands around and watches. and gets annoyed when someone pulls him away. You know, it's I like that science, about it. Keith. It's, 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 it's all about the science. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and there's there's also that like throwaway line about Lada not showing interest in him or Montgomery, and that being mm-hmm. uh, why they they need a stud, basically. Yeah, 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 yeah basically. But I mean, as far as Lon's performance, like there is also a little bit of a, a, a feminineness mm-hmm. to it as well. And I think that is kind of wrapped up in the era and maybe a sort of a coded way to get at this perversion in a way that is, again, like I said, of the era and, and not what you know we like to see today. But I think there is definitely an element of that happening in his performance. When he's lounging on the bed, like yeah. reclining. Isn't <laughs> sure. it isn't it actually on the surgical table? I remember that too, because it was just oh, such right. a strange shot. Like in in that right, moment, yeah. it almost felt to me like 
I have to confess in that moment, I, what I thought of more than anything is like being at a party where you're kind of uh, self-conscious and trying to sit down and like somehow, I don't know, the the couch is deeper than you thought it was going to be or like there's something embedded in it or something's broken or whatever. And you end up trying to pretend that you're just being uh, casual and comfortable when you're extremely not. Like his his attempt to sort of casually sit lie on a surgical table resulting in this weird drapey thing that just looks profoundly uncomfortable to me almost looked like an accident that they didn't fix or like a, a very conscious effort to make him trying to be urbane and failing. Yeah, I I mean, I, th- I think that there is a sense of deviancy to him. But at the same time, like he's, I, I don't know, he, he seems very hetero in his, uh, his interest in Lada. Lawton's own sexuality was complicated, and I think there's probably a certain amount of, of camp that he's bringing to it mm-hmm. as as well. I mean, it's, it's a very funny performance, I think, on top of everything else. I mean, he's yeah, I think he's scary and and unsettling, but it's also you know there's there's a lot of black comedy in what he's yeah, what he's he, doing there. Yeah, camp is a, ro- a word that appears a couple times in my notes. <laughs> on top of all of that, do you find yourself caring about the the leads at all, like Edward and Ruth? I don't know. I I didn't find them very real or particularly interesting compared to everything else going on. They're classic. They're both classic, you know, B movie, you know, straight straight arrow protagonists. Um, and I think that's that's kind of what I expect. And I think one advantage to having you know someone who's a little like a stiff piece of beefcake like Richard <laughs> Arlen is like you know he's he can be a contrast to the bad guy and be in contrast to to Lawton here and he's also a very Mer- American hero compared to a very British although I think Moreau makes a reference to being a boy in Australia but come on uh, a very British uh, villain yeah I guess uh, Ruth has a bit of spine to her I, I yeah. sort of enjoy her standing up to the captain even if the form of that is more or less I'm going to go tell on you uh, right. You know, she she carries through and gets some home on gets the carpet. It done. Yeah, which he she gets very it done much the, deserves. The best way she could get it done. Yeah, I, I don't really have a whole lot to add about Ruth. Unfortunately, I wish I did, <laughs> but not unusual for female characters to be underserved in films like this of this era. So in the 1930s, yeah, at least female characters that uh, you know aren't clad like uh, Polynesian dancers and lounging around on men's faces. I mean, I find the Panther Woman really tragic i find that death moving at the end as, as as well i mean it's kind of the prescribed fate for that that character and they're never going to make it off the island but nonetheless it was uh you know it's 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 a, it's a touching moment yeah it's a very classic moment for the the hero who is showing that i i mean honestly like she's she is kind of coded as the um native with a heart of gold kind of character like Mm -hmm. she she can't go back to the civilized world and uh, live among civilized folk but she can sacrifice her life for them in like the noblest cause that one uh, one could possibly ask for it's all a little a little hinky and a little depressing and still moving at the same time like more than you you want more for her and you know that uh according to the rubric of the time she's just not going to get it and that that's that's more or less the best she can do To return to uh, Parker and Ruth for a second, I'm sitting here thinking of what I said about the final shot of them being kind of unimpressive and with the exception of the line being good, as as, as you mentioned, Keith, it does strike me as like, 
it feels a little tacked on or, or not even tacked on, but like perfunctory that we have to end with our heroes. But like the scene directly before it is so much more effective in terms of like the what this movie is trying to do, especially, you know, Moreau's screams and, and being attacked with his own knives and uh, the scream, especially because that sort of animalistic, you know, bestial screaming is such a motif throughout this film that it ends on these very human screams feels like such an interesting point of contrast and just a, a cool filmmaking thing without telling the movie how what it should have done. <laughs> I think it could have been a very uh, effective final beat rather than, you know, our two bland heroes. Going back to their bland lives. Exactly. Well, I mean, this story has been remade in other versions, and it's had a long tail just in terms of other sort of iterations of it. Are there any particularly interesting places, I guess, you've seen the effect of this movie as, uh, as cinema history continue to roll out? Well, I, I've never seen the Burt Lancaster version. I have seen, I think there's another version floating around there too. I, I have seen the Marlon Brando version, which is pretty much as disastrous as you might expect. Oh, it's got some cool uh, uh, cool effects in it. But, but I mean, I'm, I mean, the, the big thing we have to mention is, is Devo, which was, you know, kind of, or Devo, to pronounce it the way the band prefers, uh, which, <laughs> you know, so much of its shtick is taken, especially in its early days, is taken from, from this film, uh, the first their first album is called "Are Are We Not Men?" Q Q Are We Not Men? A We Are Devo. Uh, but like their whole, you know, early conceptual thing about humanity devolving instead of evolving is taken partially from the, this religious track they found, uh, but and called Jocko Homo, which is also the name of one of their songs. But largely from this, like the whole idea of, of devolution, uh, humanity going backwards as a species, and it is um, you know heavily inspired uh, by this film. And uh, you know we're not doing your next picture show here, but I would do recommend uh, seeking out like their their early like short films they made or the early music videos slash semi-narrative uh, short films they made kind of exploring the idea of of uh, devolution if you only know devo from from whip it there's a whole uh there's a whole rich world to dig into but and, was whip it about this movie uh was whip it i uh, probably, you know, probably he does this, he does whip whoa. it pretty good he does whip it good yeah, on, a, on a number of occasions yeah uh and there's 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 a lot there's a lot going on in, in, in devo so uh and a lot of it comes from from this film so that's that's uh that's, that's where i see the influence a lot Wow. Well, uh, I have a, a much less a classy follower, which is uh, the South Park episode, you know, based sure. on the the Brando uh, mm -hmm. Moreau more than anything. But the whole idea of the uh, mad scientist obsessed with one very specific thing about his creation, in this case, the number of asses that his uh, his creations have is something that stuck with me and my friends way, way too much in terms of uh, it only has two asses. It's useless to me. I've got to burn the room. <laughs> I, I think just that idea of it did not meet my qualifications for success, so I have to burn the room in just a, a kind of an ongoing way, up to and including Guardians of the Galaxy 3, has kind of stuck with pop culture just in a, a sort of it's it's hilarious to overdo the degree to which you set out to do a specific thing and it it very rarely comes out the way you want and uh, the more destructive a response you can have to that the funnier it is and of course the other 
obvious thing that would almost too obvious. We don't even we shouldn't even have to mention it. But but the hip hop group House of Pain gets its name from <laughs> the House of Pain in this in this film. I wonder to what degree this this seems like a, a job for the internet and or uh, fans of classic literature that go deeper than I do. But I do wonder to what degree Animal Farm has any roots in this, and particularly the uh, mm. you know four legs four legs bad two legs good rubric as something you know as as the rule that animals mm. lay down. Well, I mean, Wells was you know widely read, obviously, and and and. Past, I mean, we we think of him as a late Victorian writer, but I mean, he lived into the 1940s. He lived certainly lived long enough to watch and not enjoy this <laughs> film, uh, too. So I can definitely see there being some sort of connection between Orwell and 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 Wells's own writing. He wrote a lot about politics and 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 you know he beyond uh, the the what is most beyond his most famous books. He wrote a lot of commentary on politics as well. Good Lord, the idea of H.G. Wells, like even though this movie was only, you know, in in the 30 or so years later uh, window after the book, it never occurred to me for a moment to think about H.G. Wells sitting down and watching movie versions of his stories. Where where did you presumably read about his response to this film? I think the audio commentary on the Criterion edition uh, uh, mentions it. Um, I'm sure there's other stuff out there as well. According to Wikipedia, which is never wrong, but this is a pretty uh, well-cited uh, entry. In 1935, Screenland magazine interviewed H.G. Wells, who stated that Island of Lost Souls is terrible and that his story was handled <laughs> miserably. With all respect to Charles Lawton, who is a splendid actor and others concerned in the making of this moving picture, I must say that it was handled with a complete lack of imagination. Wow. Well, don't we look silly for spending that much time (laughs) on uh, this movie that H.G. Wells hated. I have to wrap this up so I can go read everything that (sighs) H.G. Wells said about this movie that I'm I'm not kidding. My mind has been blown here. This is like, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, hearing that that Thomas Edison watched the uh, whatever that movie was about his uh, his feud with Nikolai Tesla and has opinions (laughs) on it. I think you're talking about the current one. I (laughs) Cannot believe that I am talking about the current war in this year of our Lord 2023, but I am. Uh, and I need to go find out if uh, Edison had opinions on it. No, no, I really just need to find out more about what Wells said about this movie. That is amazing. Well, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this discussion on H.G. Wells' opinions on cinema, uh, on whether two legs are bad or good, uh, on whether spilling blood is a terrible thing that should be against the law, and anything else in the world of film you want to talk about. Email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net if you want to share any responses with us and with other listeners, or leave us a voicemail at 773-234-9730. We'll be back in a minute with some feedback. Now it's time for feedback. But before we get to it, we want to shout out Film Spotting, the Next Picture Show's mothership podcast, hosted by Adam Kempinar and Josh Larson. As we record this, Adam and Josh's most recent episode lays out the movie summer to come, with a preview of blockbuster season, and with a look back at Andrew Tartofsky's Mirror as they continue their journey through the sight and sound poll on the best movies of all time. Moving back to feedback, here's one of those other topics in the world of cinema letters that we often call for. Genevieve, can you share this one? Sure. Matt writes, I'm a sucker for great commentary tracks. My 2023 has been all about chemo and radiation treatments for a recurrent brain cancer. I'm suffering from fatigue and living on beds and sofas, and I have far too much downtime. 
I'm hopefully looking for recommendations on Blu-ray or streaming content that's plentiful in commentary tracks. The best luck I've had has been with the Criterion channel and the Blu-ray collection of The Twilight Zone. Some of them have three to four commentary tracks apiece, and many of them are good. Yeah, I'm that guy. Anyway, would genuinely appreciate any recommendations, or feel free to delegate the task to who might be well-suited for it. I know someone who's well-suited to talk about commentary tracks. I also know someone who's well-suited to talk about commentary tracks. If only he was right here uh, on camera scratching his cat's ears. Yeah, I, I am also that guy. Um, I, I kind of lament that, that there aren't you know the the golden age of commentary tracks is is behind behind us in many ways. You just don't see them as often. They used to be on every single you know movie that came out. Some of them weren't weren't great, but I did I did you know I I do think it's the, when they're, when they're good they're really uh, quite good. I do hope our listeners will will send in some recommendations. But here's I'll, here's a few highlights. Basically, if you ever see anything with uh, Steven Soderbergh on it, that that's a good one. It's either him interviewing somebody or, or talking about one of his own films. The maybe the all time greatest commentary track is this commentary tracks to the limey uh, which i think we discussed when we t- talked about it on the show but it's 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 sort of brick and limb dobbs uh kind of fighting with each other uh you know i think civilly but there's be things like well here's another scene you ruined <laughs> from limb dobbs and here's some some quentin tarantino nonsense you put into the dialogue which uh you know you, you love that uh if you're looking for some gimmicky ones that are fun a film scholar named "quote unquote" Kenneth Loring uh, does the audio commentary for the Coen Brothers' "Blood Simple." Not on the Blu-ray that's on on the Criterion, but on the original DVD. Uh, you can find it on YouTube. I'm sure that skirts copyright, but 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 it's definitely it's a lot of fun. Uh, similarly, uh, I'm not sure where it is, but what I think it's on the current Blu-ray. But uh, Spinal Tap does a commentary for this. Is Spinal Tap? It's very much worth seeking out if you're looking for for quantity. And quality. Uh, the Simpsons always have a ton of I was going to say that the, the Simpsons and also yeah. Futurama, if you like Futurama, same, a and, lot and, of the same people and a similar vibe. And and the Simpsons commentary tracks, are they on Disney Plus now? I don't believe so, but don't. I also haven't gone looking because I actually own those. Uh, so I, I don't, I don't yeah. need them. But uh, yeah. <laughs> here, stand, stand by and I'll check. <laughs> from, um, criteria, what I've been the, reading, from what I've been reading, it seems like Criterion is the only streaming service that, that pretty consistently focuses on commentary tracks. Disney yeah. Plus seems to have, uh, in, in many cases, there's a kind of a click for more area where you can get small bonuses, but I, I have not seen any commentary tracks yet, which is not to say that they don't have them for The Simpsons, which Genevieve's currently checking. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't see uh, anything to indicate that they that they do. That stuff's great, and a lot of pe- a lot of 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 saints out there will will put stuff up on YouTube if it does disappear as well. I uh, was I mean, going to you- say, so uh, YouTube seems to be, and you may be way ahead of us if you're at, like heavily dedicated to to listening to commentary tracks, but YouTube, in the same way that uh, it has kind of become a a secret haven for people to upload like abandoned movies, movies that mm-hmm. like early movies or simply unstreaming movies, it's also become a place for people to upload commentary tracks. And in particular, my first thought when I saw this question was, oh, Edgar Wright's commentary tracks mm-hmm. uh, tend to be very in-depth, very thoughtful, very funny, and and go far beyond the usual, like what's uh, what is happening on screen right now. And one of the ones that I see recommended more, most often is his commentary for Hot Fuzz with Quentin Tarantino. And look, there it is on YouTube. I'm um, just scanning around on YouTube a little bit. There are a ton of commentary tracks that people have uploaded just because they know that uh, you, you, it's very hard to find them elsewhere. 
So Which is not to say you should not still go out and buy the wonderful Blu-rays of Edgar Wright films and, and others uh, and listen to these legally. But <laughs> when things just are out of print and have disappeared, YouTube is a wonderful option as well. And I'll also throw out a, just a quick sort of variation on the commentary track. This is not technically uh, what you're asking for, but if you're you know, running low, uh, I might suggest maybe turning your attentions over to Rift Tracks, which is still going strong, uh, originally started by the Mystery Science Theater 3000 guys and, you know, doing their thing, but they, uh, you can queue them up with any movie and, uh, you know, it's just sort of another added experience. I'm also oh, thinking sure. that there are, you know, there are a number of uh, podcasts in this vein. You must remember this immediately comes to mind where, you know, if you're interested in specifics about uh, cinema history or uh, deep dives into individual movies like Song of the South, for instance, uh, you must remember this would be, I think, a great way to go. Well, I wasn't. I wasn't done with commentary trucks. So I got oh. some more here. I'll be fast. In terms of quantity, also Lord of the Rings. Uh, those oh, are great uh, commentaries. <laughs> there's tons of them. Um, Amy John Carpenter's commentaries are great. Uh, best one is Big Trouble with Little China with with Kurt Russell, where you can you can hear them smoking <laughs> quite audibly through it. Uh, Coppola's great. Paul Verhoeven commentaries are great. Uh, the Boogie Nights commentary with Paul Thomas Anderson is is really good. Criterion is the gold standard, and then there's tons of those on the site, which is which is fantastic. Fantastic. Ebert's commentaries, he only did a couple. They're really good. There's there's one for Dark City that's especially good. Um, it's got a line in it. I don't know if you know the movie, but they go to this this huge, there's this large, like the supersized automat, the, the, these sort of like self-serve restaurants that were big after the World War II. And, and, he, and he calls, this is, he, he refers to it as, this is an automat's dream of an automat, <laughs> which is which is good as well. But um, you know, but uh, beyond that, we just hope you get to feeling better and, and enjoy the audio commentaries. Um, and any other recommendations, let us know. And also, we did an audio commentary once. I was I was going to say, Pilgrim. yeah, I was going to say we have we it's the next picture one. show uh, commentary out there. Yeah, uh, if you're not a member of our Patreon, that's uh, over there. I think that was like peak quarantine that we that we did that so yeah i don't, I don't know if like the uh the stars will ever align for us to to do another one but uh you know all, all, all we need is listeners banging the drum for us to do it and we will so just let us know <laughs> we have gotten a few calls for uh, uh renewing commentary tracks did, did anybody actually mention that the commentary track we did was for scott pilgrim versus the world Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And did anybody mention how to go about finding that? Because uh, scrolling back Patreon. through the archives is eh, not not the easiest. It's on our Patreon somewhere. Um, what other recommendation, though, in terms of Patreon is our um, the Blank Check podcast uh, with our with our friend and former coworker David Sims and Griffin Newman. Uh, they they're. Patreon feed is nothing but audio commentaries, and I'll go through series, be it the Marvel films or the or the or the Scottsky trilogy too. So it's just if it's a series, they're going to do it at some point, and, and those are a lot of fun as well. Uh, you know, I don't know that I've ever sat down and listened to maybe more than one of these, but I've heard really good things about uh, Martin Scorsese commentary mm-hmm. tracks. This, Keith, is there anything that you'd recommend in that vein? Martin Scorsese commentary tracks. What all of them? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, Blanket I, I recommendation. Which ones I've heard, but, but yeah, no. I mean, he's he talks very quickly and he knows a lot, and he's an engaging uh, guy. So yeah, you can't go wrong with that either. 
All right. I went over to the Patreon and uh, the there's there's the stuff tagged as the lobby switching tan- channels or Feedback Friday. But if you go under uh, where it says 70 more and there are tags that mostly were only ever used once, you will find the tag for commentary track. And that is the easiest way to find our commentary track. That is not the way to find Martin Scorsese commentary tracks, but I am sure that you can handle that aspect of it yourself. Uh, Keith, do you have 40 more to recommend or shall we move on? <laughs> no, that's it. Um, I, as much as I love him, avoid Robert Altman commentary tracks. They're really boring. Oh, dear. <laughs> well, Matt, we do hope that you uh, that you feel better and that you get through this trying time. And we hope that we can uh, give you a little help with that or at least a little distraction. We always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll talk about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, and we'll sort of say goodbye to our pop music-loving space heroes, or maybe we'll say hello to a different Guardians team. Time will tell. Look for that episode next Tuesday on your podcatcher of choice. For ad-free versions of the podcast and extra content, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. You can find us at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at nextpicturepod if you want to keep track of when new episodes drop. Until next week, try not to walk on four legs, but, you know, if you want to, go ahead. It's not like there's a law or anything. (laughs) 